This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I would like to know from Matt if he has any breakfast recommendations. I'm in a rut with breakfast. I killed a lot of mice for that degree, Dan. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we dig in with a mailbag to answer your questions on when it's the right time to go back to school and how to give constructive criticism. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 105. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy holidays, Dan. Yeah, did you survive the Thanksgiving feast? Yeah, I... I had a great feast. I did a turkey trot on Thanksgiving morning. Sounds exciting. Last year was the first time I had done it. And I'm from the mountains of Virginia. And it was uh, it was about 35 degrees uh, race Sounds morning. Sounds disgusting. So this year we were hoping for warmer weather, but um, it was uh, 34 degrees. <laughs> yeah, it was cold <laughs> it was, all over the Northeast. It was cold. But, you know, I, you walk out of the house and it's freezing. So I had on two pairs of pants and like a long sleeve running shirt and a vest thinking like it's freezing out here yeah and then about half a mile in i'm like i'm so hot i'm yeah, burning the, up the trouble is then you're sweating <laughs> and then you get into that really gross state where you're cold and hot and uh, i know yeah i stayed inside well that was that was a pretty good plan but it was nice to to get out and, and do something thanksgiving morning with actually with some friends of mine from high school it was pretty cool that sounds exciting yeah but thanksgiving was good and as you saw then when you came in the studio my family were, were ready for the holiday season you got boxes Oh, we got trees. We got oh the lights, the, the light bo- up yeah. reindeer. You see the reindeer outside? I did. Yeah, you can see those from space. Shot one. <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, Dan. We have speaking of holiday gifts. We we have a gift here in the studio. I see it in front of me. Tell us about it. All right, Dan. This is uh, listener beer. This is actually from uh, our good friend of the show, our patron Lynn, who brought this beer back from a European trip she was on. Ooh la la, or whatever you would say in German. <laughs> For ooh la la. This is actually a, a beer from Belgium. Okay. That's a different country than yeah, Germany, Yeah, they speak right? French. That's great. Yeah. Well, is that what language? I noticed the back of the bottle is completely not in English. Tell us the name of the beer. Yeah, and we'll get to the bottle. Uh, well, I'll tell you, the, the name of the beer is Westmall Trappist Triple. And the one thing I could read from the back of the bottle is alcohol 9,5%. Okay, so we're uh, we're in the higher gravity ranges, and the I I do love this bottle. So the back is the left half is in German, the right I we're assuming that's German. The right half is in French, and my favorite thing about this bottle, Josh, is that the volume is thirty three cl, which took me a minute. Centiliters, yeah, it took me a minute. Usually we, we see milliliters. Yeah, we don't use those much or ounces. Over here. Yeah. Ounces over here, yeah. Well, Dan, I'm sure you've heard of Trappist beer before. Absolutely. So this is brewed by monks, uh, which I think is pretty cool. And um, I don't think, have we had a Belgian style beer on the show before? I am sure we have. I'll go check the archives. <laughs> well, anyway, I was doing a little research, Dan. And so West Mall Trappist, this was the original Trappist beer. The original? What is a Trappist beer, Josh? All right. So this, uh, so a Trappist beer is a beer brewed by monks. 
Okay. And, like, and then that's, I'm, you know, I'm going to want the word origin. I'll go look that up. Yeah, you have to look that yeah. up. So uh, they're trapped in the Abbey. Okay. <laughs> Brewed by trapped people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, but West Mile Abbey uh, is in Belgium, and the first beer they ever brewed was in August, on August 1st, 1836, and they drank it on December 10th, 1836, which was almost exactly 182 years ago today. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I think it's good. Uh, well, one other thing I want to say about this. Um, so this beer actually was the very first triple. Uh, you've seen triples, other triples. Absolutely. Well, yep. this was the first one, um, otherwise known as a strong pale ale. Stop break our uh, IPA free ball. It's not an indie pale Doesn't ale. Doesn't count. Doesn't strong count. Strong pale ale. But anyway, this uh, West Mile Trappist, these these monks, they only make three types of beer, and this is the strongest of the three. So at first, that made me think maybe triple just means three x, yeah, the strongest one. But well, actually, it is three x, Dan. So um, basically, a triple just means that this was made with three times the malt, uh, which gives it a stronger flavor uh, and alcohol content. This specific triple was first brewed in the thirties, though, so it took them a while to decide to beef it Not up. Not the original 1800s era. <laughs> no, but one thing I did find interesting, um, a little bit later, a, a different abbey put in even more malt and they made a quadruple. Just trying to show them up. Was it Downton Abbey? <laughs> Probably. They just had enough money to <laughs> Maybe put in more malt. It was Abbey Road. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I mean, well, what do you think, Dan? It, you, you got it exactly right. It is very full flavored. And it, I think it's really a complex beer. If you roll it around your tongue a little bit, you're gonna you're gonna get a sense of the um, the thickness, kind of the candy sugar of it. But then the bitterness just like washes over all these different parts of your tongue. It's really, um, really intense. And as I was sipping it, like the the high gravity, the extra alcohol content, I didn't know I was tasting it, but it it does uh, it does contribute to the mouthfeel. I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think. When we first poured it, I was a little bit surprised how light in color it is. This is not a dark No, a little bit beer. hazy, and I do have to tell the story <laughs> that we are sharing this beer. We are. And as you poured the second glass, there were, you know, some of the... The sediment. The yeast, the sediment mm-hmm. started coming out. You switched your glass yeah, of wine, yeah. Uh, you're more a sediment drinker That's than me. That's fine with me, I don't yeah. Like That's where all the vitamin B is. Uh, but, you know, I as I said multiple times, I don't usually like a high-gravity beer, but this does, Dan, have so much flavor, like you said. Yeah, I'm getting almost like a fruitiness, but with a little bit of spice. Yeah, I can't place the fruit, though. I've I've been tasting, trying to determine what fruit it is, and I'm torn between a strawberry and a tangerine, and I don't know what it is. Maybe like a grapefruit? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, but I agree, you know, all that flavor up front that you're right, it almost masks the the alcohol flavor that kind of hits you later on. And I'll say, Dan, comparing it to the Dogfish Head 120, minute IPA that we had that was a total alcohol bomb. This one is much more drinkable to me. This may be the first high gravity beer that I actually wouldn't mind ordering myself. Yeah, the trouble is it comes from Europe, so good luck getting it again. <laughs> well, you have, know, you have a, expensive taste, Josh. Uh, you know the place, uh, what's the place we used to go to uh, that had all the Belgian beers? They had the big book of beers, uh, Milltown. Oh yeah, they did. Yeah. Do you think this was there? I don't know. I don't know. I think we should maybe venture out and uh, try some Belgian beers. Can I tell you the last time, the only other time we had a Belgian beer on the show? When was that? You found it? I did. Did you use the search bar on the website? Yeah. So okay. if you go to the website and uh-huh. type in Belgian, uh, you will come up with the last time was during our last listener mailbag. I kid you not. You are joking me. No. Nope. At that time, we had the Brainless on Peaches Belgian style ale from Epic Brewing in Salt Lake City. Oh, that was also sent by a listener. There you go. So there is wow. a theme developing. 
How weird. Well, if you'd like us to do another mailbag, you're going to need to send us a <laughs> send Belgian us beer. Another Belgian beer. In the yeah. mail. All right, Dan. Well, thanks to Lynn for muling this beer back from Europe for us in her in her suitcase. No last names. No last names. No last names. Yeah. All right. Dan, why don't you tell us tell us about this art contest coming up? Josh, it's the Promega Art Contest for Creative Scientists. So you can submit an image uh, of digital art, photography, pictures from your research, uh, a photo of a painting you did, whatever you want. Uh, just submit that by December 9th, and you could win the chance to go visit Promega in Madison, Wisconsin to uh, be featured in the Promega Art Showcase starting in January. So the grand prize winner gets to go to Madison to be part of the art show uh, and to meet R&D scientists and attend the opening. Um, and there are some prize packs that are available for some runners-up, uh, and their art will also be featured in the art show. So enter by going to promega.com slash art contest. Yeah, this would be a great way to showcase your art, but also um, see some industry behind the scenes. Yeah, it'd be cool. Yeah. Time is running out December 9th, so get your images in. All right, Dan. So as you mentioned uh, earlier, we have done this at least once before, but we're going to answer some listener questions. Yeah, we get emails and... A lot of times, or, or Facebook posts or tweets, and a lot of times, you know, there's content there where we can contribute an entire episode to. And sometimes there are quicker questions or questions that maybe overlap with other questions. And so we'll compile them into this mailbag and try to get some answers to our listeners. All right. Well, let's just uh, dive right in, Dan. It looks like the first one is a, a follow-up to a recent episode. It is a follow-up. So we got a response to episode 98, where we were talking about having kids and being pregnant while in grad school. And listener Sarah shared her experience of working with isoflurane while she was pregnant. Oh, wow. And she was concerned that it could affect the baby, but she says, I contacted EHS, which is Environmental Health and Safety, about this, and they were incredibly helpful. They have free appointments with a health clinic on campus to meet with someone who is concerned about their exposure to chemicals while they are pregnant. They also sent over an industrial hygienist who sat in on an echo session to observe how the isoflurane is used and what controls are in place. They gave me a chemical exposure badge to wear on the collar of my shirt so they could measure how much anesthetic I was exposed to on a long day of imaging, all free of charge. While there is no federal regulation for isoflurane, there is a California OSHA permissible level at two parts per million. The levels I was exposed to for a full day of imaging was 0.29 parts per million, so it was well below what was considered safe, and they offered me free respiratory protection if I was still concerned about my exposure. Uh, so she mentions they also do radiation and other chemical exposure readings, and we'll even talk to you about things like better ergonomics, if you have to sit or stand all day. Long story short, contact EHS, and they'll be happy to help. That was great advice. Yeah, you know, I had a couple of thoughts about this. The first one is, and I'm, I'm sure we've even made these jokes, but, you know, as grad students, I think we always viewed EHS as this, like, regulatory. It's the aid. bad guy. Yeah, yeah it's like, it comes oh, in with a no, stick. EHS is coming, you know, wear your closed-toed shoes and... Stop drinking out of that beaker. Yeah, Come on, man. <laughs> but, you know, really, we did see them almost like an us against them, but they really are there. And stop mouth pipetting <laughs> as he walks out. My PI used to do that. I know. Yeah. So did mine yeah, uh, a long time ago. But they really are. They're there to help and just make sure that, you know, laboratories can be a dangerous place, as we talked a little bit about on our Halloween episode. But they really are there to uh, help help us, those of us working in the lab, to, to be safe. And this is just such a great story. I think we probably underutilize their services. Yeah. Yeah, I like this one, too, because maybe being pregnant makes you more aware of your exposure to these chemicals. But uh, if you are in a lab situation where maybe you're a little bit concerned about 
the radiation that you're using or you feel like there should be better controls in place and you're not sure if if you're following the standards like why not go and get the the little neck badge and find out that everything is okay i think it's a good advice for anybody yeah absolutely you know dan um i had an experience a couple years ago with a colleague who was pregnant and she was cleaning out some old lab stuff and and found some old thermometers and dropped one and it was a mercury thermometer and so all this mercury was on the floor and she was pregnant and so did not want to overexpose herself to the mercury so she called ehs and they were there immediately to clean it up for them and that's another service that they actually want people to take advantage of is if you know you have a spill of some sort that you're uncomfortable or unsure how to clean up that's another area they can either help you or do the cleanup for you excellent well you ready for the first question josh bring it okay uh i've edited this one for anonymity and uh cut it down a little bit but the question is Hello, Josh and Dan. I've been working as a tech for about a year, and I want to apply to grad school this year for fall 2019. I've spoken to my employer about this, and he suggested I waited another year so that I have more experience. He was vague, but he tried to imply that I should be more precise with my scientific language and experimental design. It made me doubt my capabilities and whether or not I will get in this year if I apply. He knows best, right? However, I do want to apply to grad school this year, primarily because I want to get into the field of immunology, microbiology, and infectious diseases, which is different from what I do now. I'm working with Drosophila and genetic variation in disease, learning basic genetic techniques. It's cool stuff, but it does not produce those aha moments, and I'm not too interested. I keep finding papers in the field that I like, and I want a new challenge. I have a couple of friends that have encouraged me to apply, but I don't know if I should be paying attention to what my boss said or moving forward with my interest. I do have four semesters of undergraduate research, and by the time I leave my current job, I'll have an extra two years. I was wondering if you could share your opinion about this. I feel like I can take up the new challenge of something I really want, but I'm also hesitant. And that was signed, K. So I have have several thoughts on this. So obviously there's a lot we don't know. So So much, yeah. And (laughs) I I edited it down. There was more information in there, but I think this gives you the the flavor of the question. Yeah, and I think there's a couple ways to, to look at this. You know, when I first, when I, as I was reading through it, my first thought was, oh, well, maybe Kay could use a little more experience before applying to, to grad school, uh, mentioning being a tech in a lab for a year. So I'm imagining, you know, an undergrad, and this happens, this is a lot of students, you know, they discover research really late in the game, or maybe not at all as undergrads, and then they work as a tech for a couple years, then apply to grad school. That's very common. Um, but it sounds like Kay also, you know, mentioned four semesters of research as an undergrad. You know, that's a decent amount of research experience. So, you know, one, one avenue K could take is you could just go for it and see what happens, right? And the worst thing that happens is you get the experience of applying and you'll maybe get some feedback and, and put it in again next year and you've got a year to really build your application in the ways that you need to, right? Best case scenario, you get in and great. Now, you are getting some feedback from your current PI whose opinion is maybe you're not ready yet. And so... It starts to make one question the letter of recommendation, doesn't it? Yeah, that would be my main concern because, you know, that would not give you a lot of confidence that you're going to have the strongest um, letter of recommendation. But that's something you can talk to the PI a little more about. Um, another another disadvantage to just applying, I don't want to make it seem like, oh, we'll just apply. What? It's just a little time. I mean, it's also expensive. It can be expensive to apply to grad school too. But But, you know, another thought I had was... Kay mentions being really interested in switching fields from genetics and the the types of things she was doing before. You know, one thing I might suggest, even if you don't apply, 
is maybe see if there are opportunities out there over the next year, year and a half, where you could actually get involved in a lab that you do find interesting. Um, you know, I would hate for you to just keep spending a year in a lab where you're not getting aha moments <laughs> when, you know, wouldn't it be great to maybe find a microbiology lab or an infectious disease lab where you could do work? Because that certainly, I'm assuming you would be applying to programs and stating interest in microbiology programs. And so you're going to be an even stronger applicant if you actually have experience in that field. Yeah, I think that's great. And that was my main question here. It sounded like the number of years of research experience may be there. Um, but my my two concerns are that this felt a lot like my experience as an undergrad or as somebody um, applying to graduate school. And the, my concern is, um, have you spent enough full-time doing research that you know um, that it's research that you love? So, uh, for an example... You may be working in a Drosophila lab and say, oh, wouldn't it be cool to work in microbiology? My concern is if you get to that microbiology lab and say, well, this is much more exciting when I read research articles, it's much less exciting when I'm the one doing it. Um, does that make sense, Josh? Mm, absolutely. It's, it's, everything seems more exciting when somebody else is presenting their result. And the actual practice of research sometimes is not everybody's cup of tea as it was not my cup of tea. So I guess um, Kay can answer that question. You know, she knows how much time she spent in these labs and she knows whether she's had a variety of lab experiences or just maybe one. Sometimes you get into an undergraduate research program and then you become a tech in the lab. So you've only really been through one uh, lab environment. So my advice is if you've had that experience and you know that you do like research, just not this particular work, then it's a great time to change. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's so important at the stage when you are deciding to enter a PhD program that you really, really love the process of research at that point in time. Even if you end up not wanting to do that. You will hate it later. <laughs> but uh, you want to make sure when you go in, at least, I think that you're enjoying that. So Yeah, and if, and if the thing you're after is aha moments uh, or, or discoveries, you may want to be a science writer or you may want to do um, teaching or you may want some other aspect of science where you get those jolts of new insight and understanding, but you may not actually like the day-to-day -day work of, of doing research. And that's something you have to discover about yourself. Nobody else can tell you. All right. Well, let's move on. You want to read the next one, Josh? Yeah. So this one's from Matt. All right. So, hi, I'm Matt and I'm currently working on applying to graduate programs. It's that time of year, Dan. Tis the season. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for such a great podcast. I usually listen to it most mornings as I eat breakfast. So the the beer <laughs> section is probably irrelevant <laughs> at that hour, I hope. Mm, IPAs with my eggs. Second, I have a quick question. Over the past summer, I did a research project at a pharmaceutical company. My supervisor only received a bachelor's degree, but had enough experience that he made his way up to being a PI at the company. He said he would be able to write me a recommendation in the future if I needed it, but he'd have to use his personal email since anything directly affiliated with the company has too many privacy terms associated with it. Given this and the fact that he never went to grad school, would a letter from him be something admissions committees would want to see? Thanks for your help, the great podcast, and the great beer recommendations. So he does like the those, beer. Those early breakfasts. Uh, I love this question. It's, it's the perfect thing for a mailbag because it's a very specific question, but I think it has a lot of implications for uh, understanding letters of recommendation. So take it away, Josh. I would like to know from Matt if he has any breakfast recommendations. I'm in a rut with breakfast. 
So you're tired I need of some, eggs. You're tired yeah, of cereal. I need some new toast. Yeah, it's got to be fast. Toast with cheese on it. Mm. No, nope, yeah, I have a little bit of a sweet tooth in the morning. Oh, Maybe okay. some jam. I need a good jam. <laughs> Make yeah. some. Yeah. Make some. Really? Why that not? seems hard. All right. Good talk, Josh. Good talk. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. What were we talking about? About Matt. And uh, should he get a recommendation letter from his PI at this company, even though his PI does not have a PhD? And that the email will come from a personal email address. Jim at Science gmail.com. Dude at gmail.com. Right. Yeah. Okay. So a, a few things here. One, I absolutely think the admissions committee will want to see a letter from this person because, you know, if you think about what faculty are looking for on admissions committees, these are scientists, and what they're trying to glean from your application is, is this person going to be, have, have promise as a researcher, okay? And so, they're going to look at your CV, and they're going to say, okay, well, Matt did research at this company, for uh, over the summer. Okay, so then what they're going to want to see is how you talked about that research in your personal statement to learn about what you did and if you understood it. But then they're going to look to see, is there a letter from a colleague at that place that's not Matt (laughs) that can independently verify that Matt actually was great at research? Yeah, you said it's going to be a one-to-one matchup. And if they don't see a letter from the research experience, they start to ask questions. Yeah. So, Matt, if you have done four other research experiences besides this one, besides this summer, then maybe you don't need this one. But I'm assuming that's not the case. So, if this is a major part of your research experience that you're, that's on your CV, you absolutely have to have a letter from this person. Okay? Okay. So, do you want Matt to explain in his personal statement why this person is emailing from a non pharmaceutical company email address? Is that something they're looking at? They're trying to match that based on the email? So that would not be Matt's responsibility to do that. Okay. Okay. I think that would be, if this is a real concern, um, I think that's something Matt should talk about with the PI. And, And apparently they've talked about this because the PI, I mean, normally there aren't conversations about what email address the PI is going to use to submit but but actually let me let me say this really quick. So this is a pharmaceutical company. So it sounds like Matt is applying for maybe biomedical type PhD programs, which I'm very familiar with. Sounds right. Yeah. Um, so most most of these programs, the way recommendation letters are solicited, and I write a lot of recommendation letters for these types of programs, is not me directly emailing them in. Usually when you apply, a link is automatically generated and sent to the recommender. The recommender clicks on that link and is taken to like a little web form where they check some boxes about how great you are, and then they upload a document. So you may be able to give out the professional address Mm -hmm. of the person, or do you think it won't get to the spam Um, filter? Well, that's what I would recommend because there's no email that there's no email correspondence that's taking place here. Right. Right. And, and even if there was, that's really small potatoes because what they're really going to look at is the person's name and their title, right? And what email address they list is kind of irrelevant. Now, so, so I would say I wouldn't worry too much about the email address because it's very unlikely it's going to come directly from an email address, okay? But the, thing that, the other thing I want to address is the fact that the supervisor only received a bachelor's degree, not a PhD, now, does this matter? Well, no, it hasn't mattered for this person's career. Will it matter to the committee? <laughs> That's a great question, will it? My guess will be that they are going to assume that this person has a PhD. And even if this person signs the, the letter 
um, John Doe. Right. They're just going to assume that this person has a PhD. Yeah, because I don't put PhD after everything I sign personally. Maybe you do, but you're a terrible person if you do. I mean, within academics, a lot of times I do. And here's why I do. Because I'm in an academic position at a research one institution, but I'm not a tenure track faculty member. So... Oh, so if you don't, then you don't get whatever kind of yeah, credit you think there you, is yeah. absolutely a bias for people with PhDs within the academic setting. Fascinating. However, this person who has some PI director type position within this company, unless he just overshares in his letter about yeah. I started from the bottom, now I'm here, you know, type yeah. of thing. Um, I think I think there's a lot of worry for nothing. I think there's a lot of information that isn't necessarily going to be important to the committee. They won't even really think about, to be honest with you. And we've talked in the past about using PhD when, or no, you use doctor when you go sign into a hotel, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you get bumped <laughs> I'm, up to I'm trying a, to think of all the ways that you're abusing this title. It's not, a, I, I killed a lot of mice for that degree, Dan. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So it sounds like it's, it's a non-issue. And it should all work smoothly and seamlessly and nobody's going to know the difference. Yeah, I think the reality is Matt has to have a letter from this person regardless. Uh, but I think I, I think some of, of Matt's concerns um, are not actually going to be big issues to the They're committee. not going to reflect negatively on Matt or his experience. I don't think so. Now, I will say this. You know, I do think there is a little bit of bias on the admissions committee for letters from academic research PIs because the people reviewing the application are academic research PIs. And so I think bias in favor of, or they say, Oh, I don't of. like his work. No, 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 therefore, no, in favor of, because okay. I think, you know, I think that's their peers. That's who they're familiar with. I think sometimes they see something from um, an industry scientist or they see industry experience and not all admissions committees or faculty know what to do with that. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense because they don't have experience in those lab environments. They're not sure how to rank those experiences. Yeah. So so one thing I would be curious to know for Matt is, is this his only research experience or he has three research experiences? This is one of the three. The would that be are, a problem if uh, you only had industry experience? It may. It may. Uh, well, and, but more than the industry thing, the fact it was just one summer. I see. Right. I think that could be a bigger concern the committee might or might not have. And yeah. you can use whatever email address works. I think unless they tell him, they will assume that this person does. Because they'll probably say, oh, he's an industry, not academia. He doesn't feel the need to like flaunt PhD. Yeah, after exactly. <laughs> Look how cool like he is. Like me, yeah. <laughs> like you, Dan. Do you put PhD after your name? Never. Yeah. I Except do. on my LinkedIn page. Okay. But it's the same reason you do, so that yeah. I get credit for killing mice. Hey, yeah. there you go. All right. Let's, uh, I think we have one, right along. one more question that's sort of related to graduate school. Okay. Let's admissions. see if I can read this one. Okay. Hi there, I just wanted to message you to tell you how much I enjoy your show, especially the episodes on mental health. I'm struggling to decide whether to do my PhD. It seems to be a really bad idea if you already have mental health issues and imposter syndrome, considering all the reports on doctoral students suffering from depression. Coming from a blue-collar family, not even an A-level in sight, below the poverty threshold in my country, and having a master's degree should be enough of an achievement, but somehow I can't let it go and keep wondering whether I could do it. Anyhow, thank you for bringing these things up. I'm sure you're helping a heap of people. Cheers. And this comes from Liz. All right. Well, you know, the first thing I want to say is absolutely you can do it. Coming from a certain type of family or a certain background is not an indicator of, of whether or not you can do it. I mean, your career so far, Josh, has been dedicated to helping people who maybe come from backgrounds that are not the, the most represented, mm -hmm. um, who believe that 
maybe they don't have a place in science, who don't have any family members who have mm-hmm. ever done it, and you help bring them through that process. So absolutely, however many students you've helped, a hundred times yes. Yeah, no, I've worked with dozens and dozens of students who come from very challenging backgrounds and absolutely have been extremely successful in science. So, And in a lot of ways, I would say your background is a strength because as we talk about all the time on the show, Dan, uh, research is a hard road. It really takes the ability to be able to pick yourself back up when things are challenging, right? And I think if you come from a, a background or you've had a life experience, just, you know, you've been fortunate that you haven't had a lot of, of challenges, you know, in your early life. Sometimes research hits you in grad school, hits you pretty hard. Like a Mack truck, yeah. <laughs> or know? a train. Because it's hard for everybody, right? But, right. you know, if your life has been a series of overcoming challenges and having to be creative to to move from one step to the next, then, I mean, grad school is just going to be another challenge like that. And you're going to be well equipped uh, to meet that challenge. So, so, absolutely. I think the bigger question is thinking about, is this something you want to do? Are you interested in this? Does this sound like an exciting um, or interesting career for you? Yeah, I, I, I hear a lot of imposter syndrome in this question, and I think it's good that, <laughs> that Liz recognizes it, that you know it's explicit in here. I, I've listened to episodes on mental health and imposter syndrome. Great. That's exactly what you're feeling. But, but Josh's question is, do you want to do it because it's an achievement, or do you want to do it because you love science and can't get enough of it? And those are very different things. And one of them is going to make you deeply, deeply unhappy, and one of them is going to be better than your wildest dreams. So uh, knowing where you fall on that spectrum, I think, really matters. Yeah, I think what you said, Dan, really is the the most important advice here. This was a very short email, (laughs) or a very short message. So I think that's the question. You know, we didn't hear a lot of I love research, it's what I really want to do, but I feel like maybe it's not, I'm not cut out for it because I don't see people like me. If that's the case, yeah, if you want to do it, you can do it. Um, but you're absolutely right, Dan, um, doing it just to get those letters or feel like I'm going to prove something, that, w- that would be the only caution that we would give. Yeah, so if you decide, yes, I love, I love science and I want to be part of this thing, make sure that you take the steps to, to prepare to maintain your mental health. You talked about... Um, maybe struggling with depression or, or with imposter syndrome, you're going to want to be proactive if you decide to go into this field and and to do all the things we've talked about before and, and some links we've posted to take care of your mental health. But absolutely, you can do it and you just need to to have the help along the way. Yeah, and you know, there's, re- you know, there's uh, research out there, Dan, that shows uh, teams made up of people from different backgrounds and different walks of life actually produce better end products than uh, more homogenous teams. So yeah, you bring a lot of uh, good things to the table. So Excellent, Josh. Well, we actually do have one more question, which I referenced much earlier. And this is a different, oh, okay, different topic. I, I referenced this in the intro, but okay, here it is. Here we go. Hi, I just started listening to your podcast and I can't wait to hear more. So obviously you've not listened to the podcast. <laughs> Can't wait to turn it this just started. Just yeah, started. it just started. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're not tired of it yet. I'm a PhD student and have recently been invited to co-author an article related to our project. I find it challenging to criticize others' work in a good way, especially when the main author is the PI. Can you discuss giving good feedback as a co-author? How much feedback is appropriate? I mean, you can find something to criticize in each section. Yeah, it's funny. This uh, reminds me of a conversation I had with a student uh, just about a month ago. Um, so this was a student who was fairly new to research in general. And, and so she had gone to um, t- 
to this class where where all the students were, were giving talks. And then you know, the student would give a talk, and you know what happens after a talk. I fall asleep. I don't know <laughs> what happened. You know, there's like questions, you know. and Oh, yeah, questions. That's right. That's yeah, when and, I wake up. Yeah, and the specific thing was part of a class, so there was also just a lot of, well, you could have done this better. There's a lot of feedback. I think you remember, Dan, we used to do that in our first year of grad school. Yeah, we did. Just yeah. uh, constructive criticism, sometimes hard to take, but mm-hmm. usually meant well. Immensely helpful. Um, so anyway, so this student was talking to me about how, how that felt uncomfortable to her and whether that was normal because here these people were giving these presentations they'd worked really hard on and then everyone was just being negative about it. it was just criticizing them. Yeah, there can be a piling on effect, right? Where because you want to say something and everybody feels like they need to give their voice, then you you nitpick and you say things that maybe are not so helpful because everybody's giving criticism. Sure. Um, but one thing I asked her, I said, well, did... You know, did the person receiving the feedback or did any of the students receiving the feedback seem upset? Only four of them cried. <laughs> but she said, no, no, they didn't seem upset at all. And, and, I, and I told her, I think that that's how the culture of science tends to be is that's the expectation is you present something and then people look for the holes and they look for the, the whole basis of the scientific method, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a cultural thing, right? That it's not a personal thing and really dan i think in different fields might be viewed a lot differently if you gave a presentation and then everybody suddenly no one said oh that was a great presentation but instead just immediately jumped into like specific questions about your slides or your methodology so um that was just interesting important for me to remember as someone who's been in the science culture for a long time that from an outsider perspective it seems kind of weird all the criticism and critiquing yeah it's it's socially awkward in in the general population because you want to be polite and you want to get along but in science the goal is to find the truth so there's a different end point that we're aiming for yeah so so anyway so back to this question so so this question came from lena and and lena mentioned finding it challenging to criticize others work in a good way um, and how you do that so you know i think what's important is to realize this is work uh it's not personal life you're not saying hey you're a jerk you're stupid and this is bad. Yeah, but you think about what the goal is, right? It's, it's almost like when we're writing, scientific writing, it's one thing I like about it, is a team sport, right? You almost never have to do anything on your own. And so everyone has the same end goal, and that is to produce the best product possible on this paper or this grant application. And so I think the way you give feedback can be important. I agree with that. Yeah, and, some advice? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think you can focus on the content. I think there are ways you can make comments. Like, So instead of saying, well, this makes no sense, you could say, I wonder if a more clear way to phrase this would be this. And then you offer a different suggestion. Yeah, sometimes you'll read something and you will say to yourself, this sounds terrible and it would sound better this way. And so you can offer the the suggestion, which I think is it's helpful this doesn't. This wasn't very clear to me. What about this? Sometimes you know it doesn't sound right, but you can't figure out how to fix it, and that's more tenuous to me because then you're saying this is bad, but I don't know either, and I think that's less helpful. So uh, as much as you can, try to provide an alternative that the person can respond to and say, "Well, actually, that makes me think of this," and that, and then you can fix it together. Um, I'm interested, Josh, in in the notion in here that. Uh, she says, especially when the main author is the PI, do you see a lot of students kind of idolizing or, or thinking that 
PIs are infallible and therefore should never be corrected? Is there that power dynamic going on? Um, I think there definitely, I mean, there certainly is a power dynamic um, in the PI versus student relationship. There is a natural power dynamic there. Do PIs ever make mistakes, Josh? Never. Well, I, th- I think this is very important for PIs to to understand in academia because a lot, of, not all, but a lot of PIs, I think, still imagine themselves as still being the cool postdoc who's in the lab, <laughs> just one of the gang, you know. And I think a lot of times they don't see the power dynamic or they like to believe that one does not exist because academia does tend to be a less hierarchical, more um, laid back, casual structure, um, not as defined of a structure as industry, for example. Um, but I think PIs have to understand um, even if you're the most casual, cool cat PI, there is still absolutely a power dynamic that exists between you and the people in your lab. Um, so, so one thing I would recommend is part of your PI's job is to mentor you in in being a scientist in all its forms, not just doing experiments and giving critiques on and feedback on scientific writing and others' work is part is a skill that's part of being a scientist that you need mentorship and guidance on. So I would actually encourage you to have this conversation with your PI. Say, hey, you know, maybe you're new to being a co-author on a paper. Maybe this is your first time in having that experience. And, and maybe say, like, what what feedback do you have or what do you have any strategies or tips? What do you expect from me? How would it be helpful for me to edit this? Or how would it be Mm -hmm. helpful for us to go through the notes that I have or, or having a conversation about it, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, because honestly, that actually will be different. There's not a one size fits all in what type of feedback people like to receive. I like flaming arrows shot into my (laughs) chest. That's the way I like to find out. Uh, I I think one thing you said is really wise, Dan, not just in uh, critiquing scientific writing, but probably even beyond that is to be a good uh, co-author, a good person giving feedback, it's not just saying this is no good or this needs to be changed, but F, being, able to minus, offer, yeah. being able to offer your suggestion that you've put thought into how to make it better. I mean, I think most people are open to that. Absolutely. So, Lena, let us know how that goes. I, I would like to hear whether you were able to have that conversation and what you agreed on, what, what you talked to the PI about and how you figured out a way to communicate about communication. All right, Dan. Well, it looks like uh, that's all. The mailbag's empty for now. It's, it's not empty, Josh. We're, <laughs> we're scraping the surface here. It's just our beer glasses are empty. That's right. <laughs> well, this is great. Uh, we love answering your questions. The reason we get here together and drink beer and, and do this shit. Well, actually, we would probably get together and drink beer anyway. But the reason we have microphones and talk about this stuff is because we want it to be helpful for you. So we love getting your questions. So if you have other questions, you can send them to us. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd or leave a message on our Facebook page. I would like to say... Josh monitors that. I am not super active on the Facebook page compared to the Twitter feed um, or you on our email, but that does not mean it gets ignored. Um, At least two of the questions today came to us through our Facebook page. That is true. Yeah. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money. Thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. And thank you, Lynn, for this delicious Belgian beer. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm going to go out and get some more Belgian beer. Is there any more sediment in there for me? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> you could a little probably, bit. Yeah. Maybe we could pour this into a spoon and you could eat it Maybe for breakfast. Chew on it a while. Put it on some toast. <laughs> hey, that's true. 
There we go. Some you found toast. your you found your your uh, breakfast recommendation. I'm Vegemite. Putting, putting this bottle in the fridge for the morning. Done. All right. Thanks everybody for sending questions. And Dan, uh, we will be back at you in a couple weeks. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>